The sermon text this morning is from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. When you think about leadership, um, who are some of the names that come to you, great leaders of the past? Is it like George Washington, kind of his vision for a nation? Would you say it's Abraham Lincoln? Is it more along the lines of someone keeping together a, a fracturing nation? Or is it more Martin Luther King preaching peace in a time of, of great unrest, or Gandhi, or Churchill? When you think of leadership, what do you think of, and what are the qualities of it? It's really what Paul is speaking to uh, today. If you're new here, we've been looking through 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is uh, one of the pastoral epistles, so Paul, the apostle, is giving wisdom to Timothy, his protege, this pastor that's going to remain in Ephesus. And the, the letter has a specific purpose, which is to help people understand the nature of the church, how they ought to behave in the household of God. <clears throat> now we saw, uh, kind of giving this organization to the church, we saw in the first chapter that fundamentally the gospel has been given to the church to guard and to proclaim. Uh, that Paul said, no, the gospel is to be proclaimed to the people. This gospel, this good news that God has met us in our need by providing a son, a Messiah, to come and deliver us. That is the message of the church, that God's kindness, his steadfast love is seen, that even though we have gone wayward, he has sent a son to save. Uh, through his own life and death and resurrection, he has brought us to himself through faith in his work alone. That's the message of the church. That's the message that we proclaim, and that's the message that we protect. Because we saw in the first chapter how false teachers will come in and want to distract and want to dilute that message. But then quickly he moved in terms of how do we gather together and worship? How do we organize ourselves? What do we do when we're together? And we found in chapter 2 that we're to be praying. We're a people who pray. We have access with God in the name of Christ, as Ray prayed. We have access to God, and we're to pray for kings and all those in authority, but really for all peoples to come to know this gospel message. And so we pray together. And then he goes even more specific into men and women. We saw that last week. Men are to lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. In other words, men, when you're coming to church to worship, you're cleansing your soul before God for the things that you've done that are unholy. You're coming clean. You are thankful for the gift of repentance. You're thankful that Christ forgives. 
so that you can lift up holy hands. And your coming have been reconciled not just with God, but with each other. The conflicts that you have are reconciled. If not, I promise you that worship will not be transformative and it will remain superficial. And women, you are called to learn your strong minds to learn the deep things of God and to grow in those things. And yet at the same time, he puts in that caveat that women are not to teach and exercise authority. And that's what he gets to here. Well, who is to teach? Who is to lead? And that's what we have here. Now remember, false teachers are there. False teachers are identified both by their false teaching, but also by their disordered lives. And so he gives us in this passage, not so much what, what elders do, but who they are to be. So it's more of the qualifications. For, well, first he deals with ambition. Why would one want to become an elder? You know, what's, wh why would we aspire to the task? And then secondly, what are the qualifications that would make them worthy of the task? So just two points today. First, what does it mean to aspire? What ought to drive us? What ought to drive the men who lead the church to the actual role of doing it? And then what are the qualifications for it? So uh, first, aspiration. Look with me back at verse 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, interesting way to start. This is the second of five trustworthy sayings. I think what Paul's doing here is he's adding great solemnity, weight, gravity. This is a big deal. If you want to aspire to the office of overseer, this is a very big deal. You can trust that it's a noble task. You can trust it. But what are we aspiring to? Is it an office? You know, is it a title? Is it honor, recognition, accord? No, that word for office would mean more along the lines of work. Do you aspire to do the work of an overseer? I mean, do you want to do that work, that work of leading and feeding and giving direction, praying, caring for, knowing and loving and sacrificing for the sheep? It's often mundane. It's often difficult. It's often complicated. It's often fraught with difficulties and problems. Do you aspire to do the work, is what Paul's saying. If you aspire to do the work, then it's a noble task. But what makes it noble? Well, I think what makes it noble is you're doing the work that God has assigned to you. It's a work of leading people to know and love God. It, it's a work of trying to prepare men and women for that final day when they stand before God, that they should say thank you for those who have led us. It's a noble work because it often involves suffering. You know, in the early church, probably the first three centuries, uh, those who would suffer first of persecution from the Romans would be the leaders. But that went all the way up into the middle, you know, the 15th, 16th centuries. The Waldensians were a group of Reformed Christians persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church at the time. They were told not to gather. If they gathered and they were caught, the pastor shot on sight. Men and women taken. It was just they suffer suffering, but they suffer persecution. But not just persecution from without. There's also the difficulty and the discontentment of suffering from within, misunderstanding, perhaps not, not being um, people being discontented. Uh, so what he's saying is it's a noble task because the elders are to display the gospel by the way that they serve, even in times of, of difficulty. 
But notice, when he says it's a noble task, uh, Paul seems to imply what Peter makes clear. So in 1 Peter 5, Peter tells the church, Elders, shepherd the flock of God that's under your care. He says, not under compulsion. It's not a position that you can be forced into. It's not a position you can be appointed to. He says this, that you are to shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. There's a desire that's to be there, that aspiring to the role. Even though it's a difficult task, it's a noble task. So do you see the necessity and the nobility of the task and the role of elder? Uh, the necessity. So, so God has seen fit to create order in his creation, right? We see order in the home with the husband and wife. We see order in society with government and citizens. We see order in creation with the sun and the stars and the planets around it. And he's placed in order in this church by necessity. Why? Well, because elders are to protect the flock. Uh, they are the ones, you know, when, if you go to read Acts chapter 20, uh, you'll see there a much clearer definition of what elders do. But Paul is traveling back to Jerusalem, and uh, he stops at Miletus, this town along the coast. And there he greets the Ephesian elders, so the elders of this church that I'm speaking about. And he greets them and he says, listen, shepherds, or he says, um, he says, wolves will come among you and seek to destroy the faith of those in the church. Uh, that God by necessity has placed elders as a means of protecting the church by necessity. In fact, it's uh, Carl Truman. I don't know many of you perhaps have read some of his writings. He's a modern day theologian. But he wrote an article, kind of a cheeky title, I think I've referenced this before, but he says the gospel is not f sufficient. And the idea is not that the gospel isn't sufficient to save. It is sufficient to save. But the gospel was given to the church. And the church, particularly the elders, are to protect it so that it's not diluted and distracted. So there's a necessity for God's design of hierarchy. But there's also a nobility to it. Because it is such a weighty task, as you heard Again, in Ray's prayer, it's a weighty task. You know, when Paul looks at the gospel ministry, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient for these things? So he says it's a noble task. So if there are those even here who aspire to the office of overseer, you know, whenever I, I talk to candidates, I, I ask them questions such as, do you desire to see men and women grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? I mean, are you like Paul in Philippians 1 who says that he would rather remain, instead of being with Christ in glory, he would rather remain here, and he says, for the progress and joy of your faith. So the, the desire, the aspiration of the elder is we want to see people grow in their knowledge of God and in their obedience to him. But we also want to see them grow in their affections to God. It's not just getting big heads, but big heads and big hearts kind of serving God. I ask the question, are you willing to embrace the sacrifices of time, of energy, of meetings, of being in sticky situations where often you don't know exactly what to say or where to go? And you can't say everything that needs to be said. Are you willing to accept those things? Are you already eldering, I'll ask. 
you know, it's best, you know, Mark Dever in his book, Deliberate Church, he says, it may be wise to recognize men who are already qualified and are already doing elder type work rather than make men elders simply by training them. In other words, there's this idea of, are you already leading a care group? Are you already engaging in discipleship relationships? So those who aspire to the office ought to kind of be already eldering, but without the title, but embracing the work. Uh, so that's the first thing Paul says. In verse 1 is simply this, you know, that people who aspire to the work itself, it's a noble task. It's a righteous work. But it takes more than aspiring to it. It also involves having qualifications for it. And that's what you see in verses 2 all the way through the end, chapter 7. There's four things I want to give you that I think we can sum up these qualifications. These are windows for us to look through to see, is a person qualified? Do they meet Paul's criteria for being an elder? And uh, I just want to go through them slowly with you because they're very important. Uh, first would be their personal lives. Are their personal lives marked by holiness and godliness? You see this in 2 and 3. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Uh, so right away, it's, in, it's about 11 or 12, depending upon how you look at the contrast towards the end, but about 11 or 12 characteristics. Are these marking the personal life of the person who spires? So first he says above reproach. Now what does that mean? That doesn't mean perfection, by the way. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means, it speaks about observable behavior, uh, that the person's life is above public reproach. In other words, there isn't clear scandal, duplicity in their life, that their lives, their outward living, is not inconsistent with the teaching of Jesus. Being above reproach is further explained by all the characteristics that follow. Uh, the husband of one wife, for example. So Paul moves right to marriage. And he, and he moves to the husband of one wife. What does this mean? Well, literally in Greek, it's a one-woman man. It's a one-woman man. Now, some people think this means that a single cannot be an elder. I don't think it means that. Uh, I think you can be single. You know, Paul is single. Timothy was single. Some people think it means uh, if you've been divorced before, you can't be an elder. Not sure it means that. There are qualifications for divorce. Some people think it's just kind of ruling out polygamy, you know, the multiple wives. It could mean that. But there's a lot of arguments back and forth. But let me submit to you, at least at a minimum, it means that the man is devoted to loving his wife, that, that the man has pursuing the covenantal promises that he made to his wife to hold to cherish, to protect, to love. Th that the man's marriage is reflective of faithfulness. But, but not just marriage. Notice what he goes on to next. He says, sober-minded. This means sensible in thought, by the way. Sound judgment. Uh, that he is not just sober-minded, uh, but he's self-controlled. Self-controlled, he's, he's not impulsive. He has mastery over his appetites of food or entertainment or alcohol. He says respectable. It means it's a well-ordered life. It's disciplined. It has poise in conflict. It can handle difficult situations. 
the man has to be hospitable. That literally means a love of strangers. In other words, his home is open to doing ministry, that people are in his home, speaking about the things of God, reaching out to people who are not just those that are comfortable. It's a man who can teach. This isn't about preaching. You know, teaching and preaching are significantly different. Uh, I think teaching here is speaking more to knowing doctrine, being able to explain it, and then being able to defend it or refute those who want to bring false teaching. John Calvin said it this way. He says, it's not artful speech, but it's wisdom in applying the word of God judiciously to the advantage of the people. But not just that the man is to be able to teach. He's not violent but gentle. This is he's not given to outbursts of anger. This doesn't mean that he doesn't blow his top every now and then, but there's not this pattern of blowing your top. There's a gentleness. There's, there's an ability to not demand my rights to be understood. He's not quarrelsome. In other words, he's not a debater and argumentative and always kind of getting his horns locked, but he's conciliatory. He's not a lover of money. He's not always wanting more and more and more. Or he's not worried about money all the time, but he's generous. He's giving of money. So, so think about all these characteristics. So when a prospective elder comes, I'll ask him, are you generous? What do you do when you get angry? How is your wife? How would she speak to your faithfulness in the covenant? And, and we'll go through these. You know, th these, are, these are a good kind of litmus test as to, to what degree is he walking in holiness. Not perfection. We sin, but then we repent. That's the greatest, one of, I think one of the greatest gifts in this broken world is our ability to say, I have done wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Uh, but not just the personal life, notice he shifts quickly uh, to the family life. Look with me at 4 and 5. He says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you see he gives a qualification, but also a reason for it. So he says he must manage the, his own household well, with dignity. In other words, the family becomes kind of the proving ground for what kind of leader he will be. Does he manage his home with dignity? That word for manage, by the way, means rule and care. So, so both exercising authority in proper proportion, and it also means care. Is he caring for them? Is he providing for them? Is he making sure their needs are being met? Is he ruling and caring well? Is his marriage strong? Is his wife loved? Is his wife growing in the faith? Is their marriage admirable? Is it something that others could imitate? Are his children submissive when they're young? Are they, are they obedient? Not, are they sinless? You know, they're sinners, and they have conflicts, and they have difficulties. But are they generally obedient? Now, uh, many of you know that there's a passage in Titus that speaks to the children as well. And it's translated, are they believers? Some, leading some to think that the children of elders have to be believers. But men and women cannot cause their children to be believers. Uh, that word for belief, the Greek word, can mean faithfulness as well. Are they faithful to follow in the direction the Father leads. So, so here you have, and, and I think the reasoning that Paul would look here is obvious. 
If a family is not willing to follow a man who is providing and caring for them, then, then he won't be able to lead a church for whom he doesn't give the same provision. Uh, so you see, and, and I'll sit down with a prospective elder, I'll sit down with the wife. You know, how is he as a husband? Do you feel protected? Do you feel cared for? Do you feel well-led? Is he spiritually engaging the family? Is he leading the children with that proper balance of authority and care? And so we'll go through that to make sure that the family life is in order. Uh, the third window that Paul gives us as a qualification for elders is the spiritual life of the individual. Look with me at 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. So that word for recent convert means newly planted, uh, like a little tomato plant just planted just in the beginning of the season. It's new, it's weak. He's saying that those who are newly planted shouldn't be elders. Those who have just come to faith. Why? Well, because elder is a high office in the church, and to give someone that is relatively new in the faith uh, the office of overseer is, uh, can lead to headiness, arrogance. It can lead to pride, being conceited. You have this now authority without understanding the responsibility that goes along with it. But, but it's not just newly converted. I would also argue that it could mean those who are just young, just young. I mean, isn't that kind of seen in the word elder, elder being older? And if spiritual maturity is a requirement to be an elder, doesn't it take time to grow and to mature? It's amazing. The age helps in terms of an elder who is older has suffered, has gone through difficulties, and is still walking by faith. So it's not as if you know, the young man who has had little experience in the harshness and the difficulties of life Will his faith sustain him? Will he lead people through things that he has not gone through? Uh, those who are older have more experience in suffering. It doesn't mean they can't be on the younger side. Is there a mixture, speaking to the plurality, is there a mixture of those who are older? And those who are older tend to have a little thicker skin. So when criticisms, and some appropriate, some perhaps not, when they come, will they stand and be able to take the hit and continue to be faithful? So I think he's speaking both to those who are newly planted and those who are older. Now, how old do they have to be? And how newly planted can they be? Well, that's a question of wisdom. How much have they gone through in life? How long have they been in the faith? How much have they sought God while in the faith? Some men I've seen grow to maturity in five years that I have seen not take place in those who have been in the faith 20 years. So it, it all depends. It, it's it's really a case-by-case -case decision. Now, for a prospective elder, I'll always have, you know, we take them through leadership classes. We take them through training to be elders. Uh, we're looking at Bible knowledge to make sure they understand the sweeping story of God's redemption. We look at Scripture and memorize Scripture verses. We, in training, do case studies. Okay, here's a case. And, and we speak to it and say, you know, how would you handle it? What Scriptures would you bring to bear? How long would you take with them? What level of patience? Who else would you? So we're trying to help discern the spiritual maturity of people before they're ever elders. And then the fourth window that he gives us is found in verse 7, and that is, um, that is reputation with outsiders. Look with me at 7. He says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, 
so that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In other words, Paul's concerned that the elder has a reputation that is strong outside the church. In other words, how well is the elder known among his co-workers or his boss? Or how well is he appreciated by his neighbors? You know, have they had a squabble over that fence post for year after year after year? You know, how well is he known and how is he perceived? And again, I think the reasoning should be obvious that when they're not respected by an outsider, then it gives people reason to disbelieve the claims of Jesus Christ. It gives people reasons to disbelieve the promises of God. And we've had no shortage of moral, financial, and sexual failures among leaders. They, the snare of the devil is real. Satan seeks to attack the leaders of the church. The gospel has its own offense to it in declaring you sinners in need of repentance. We don't want to add to the offense of the gospel by bad behavior among outsiders of those who are elders. Timothy, uh, Tim, Paul writes to Titus the same thing. He says in chapter 2 in Titus, he says, In everything set them as an example by doing what is good, speaking of the elders. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. This is kind of, so when I get with a prospective elder, I'll say, how do your neighbors view you? What was the last review you got from your employer? What do your co-workers think about you? Do they see you working hard? Do they see you working honestly? Have you gotten bad reviews year after year because you haven't worked as hard? So all those things are important to discern whether a person is qualified to be an elder or not. Uh, so you see the seriousness of Paul laying down these qualifications for elder. Is there ambition to do the work? and to embrace it in its full measure? He says it's a noble task. And are Because a lot of people will say, well, so-and-so can be an elder, and so-and-so. And, and, uh, and I'll say, well, here are the criteria. Have they been met? Many people are good businessmen. That doesn't mean they'll be a good elder. Uh, some people are just really, really nice, but that doesn't mean they'll be a good elder. There are clear windows that we try to look through to discern who would do this job well. It's a serious task. Now, I know this raises up many questions for you. Uh, one would be, are these really attainable, Tom? I, I mean, when you read the list, you're kind of whew, blown back. Are these really attainable? Well, I want you to look back at the list with me in 2 and 3 because you're going to notice that except for able to teach, they're really kind of what the Christians are called to do, right? Sober-minded, faithful in marriage, self-controlled, respectable. That word respectable was used actually for the women's dress in chapter 2, verse 8. Hospitable, to open up your home, uh, to not be violent, not be quarrelsome, not be caught up in money. We have a whole chapter 6 on that issue. So, and that's for everybody. So you see they're kind of, they're kind of really the normal stuff of life, aren't they? strengthening your marriage, walking out, good behavior with the neighbor. Uh, you you kind of see, and, and you know what? Here's something. The list really isn't exhaustive, is it? You don't see anything about prayer. You don't see anything about Bible reading. So, so you see that these, these are attainable. 
recognizing that we cannot walk them out with perfection. So while the elders find these attainable, we don't practice these always without error or sin, which requires our repentance. Uh, so we can't expect those who are in offices of elder or deacon to do these perfectly. And I, I think you even heard that on Wednesday. You know, you heard both Adam and Ray give word to things that we've learned in these conversations where perhaps we've missed or had some shortcomings that we want to resolve. And so, so we want to be open to that. There's a symbiotic relationship between member and elder. We need each other in this. Elders have been appointed to guide, lead, and serve, and people are called to be praying for and encouraging and speaking to and sharing their concerns. Uh, we, we will survive and thrive together more than apart. So are these attainable? Yes, but they're not attainable with perfection, and that's where we have to be humble. That's why we need you to prayer. So when Paul says, who is sufficient for such a task? The great apostle Paul says that. So who are we to not say along with him? Yes, it is. A, it seems as if an undoable project. But secondly, what can you expect of these elders? Now, there's a funny thing with expectations. Everybody has them, but they're not all the same. They're different. People have different expectations. So a professor of mine back in seminary, he was a professor of uh, kind of the pastoral ministry department. And he, uh, he told a story about when he went to a church, they were seeking a pastor. And, um, and so he wanted to collect the people together to kind of create a unity on what pastor they wanted. And so he said, what are some of the things you think the pastor ought to be doing? And they said, well, he should be preaching sermons. Right, so he writes it on the chalkboard. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a precursor to a whiteboard. And they use little pieces that break in your hands when you press too hard. But, but he put down preaching. And then he should be going to visit, uh, he should be visiting those who are sick. And he wrote that down. And the older folks in the church ought to get a visit. He wrote that down. Well, he ought to be part of the community, and the community, so he wrote that down. And, you know, he ought to be leading the different ministries of the church. And he wrote that down. Anyways, he went through and wrote down all that they gave. And then he said, okay, now, how much time do you think he ought to be um, assigning to each one of these categories? And someone said, well, 10, 15 hours on the sermon for sure, wrote that down, and then wrote them all down. And as he got to the bottom of the list, everybody started kind of chuckling, and he's chuckling, because when he added up the hours, it was 114 hours per week for what he ought to be doing. Now, that, that, obviously, that's a humorous way of saying we all have different expectations, but what are the expectations that you ought to have for the elders? Well, clearly, to pray, to pray for you. And we see that in Acts chapter 6, to preach and to pray. Now, earlier on, we used to assign lists of members. Back when we were smaller, we assigned families to each elder. And, uh, and this worked okay. It didn't work, and, and each elder would be praying for their list of people. And it worked okay, but it, it sometimes had a problem because some people would say, well, I'm more comfortable with this elder and not that elder, and I'd rather be with this elder. Or if the elders rotated off, then the new person coming on, they weren't known to the person and they felt uncomfortable. So what we decided to do is the church began to grow. We took a step back and we said, hey, we won't assign people anymore. But what we'll do is uh, we'll use the plurality of the elder board. And so every time we meet, we speak on one or two letters of the alphabet. 
And so we bring up your name. Tom and Carol Mercer come up. How are they doing? Are they plugged in? Are they struggling in life? Uh, who can encourage them? When someone says, well, I'm going to have an appointment with him next week, or, or I'm going to be seeing him in two weeks, I'll take him. And so what we decided to do is allow the plurality to function well so that whoever knows the person or is connected, they can go over and all couldn't call Tom Mercer, too many people in the church, but one would go as of the whole uh, to speak with and to pray with. Uh, but, you know, we're finding out maybe that's not working as well. And so we're reconsidering again. Maybe go back to the, the lists of people. Increase the elders and make the list smaller so it's more doable. But we pray for you. We may try to manage the affairs of the church, not just budgeting, uh, but, but even the facilities. So Greg Morton is the deacon, and Cole kind of undergirds him and supports him. So they do things like... Um, you know, like work on the building and the grounds. They're working with, with Travis. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes the screen makes noise periodically. I don't know if you've seen that before, but we're, we're really, the screen goes up every Sunday and it's an annoyance. You don't see that. So we're, we're trying to fix that by getting some con, uh, TV screens that might make it easier put up, um, you know, the going-ons of the church kind of announcements. Uh, they do that. They do the staffing issues. They review what I intend to preach for the next year to, uh, to make sure it's a good diet for the people. So all this work, you can expect that. And, and it needs to continue, but trying to manage all these affairs of the church so that you are in a position to faithfully grow and be prepared to see God face to face. But what can you do? Well, I would just ask you to pray for us, uh, to pray for us, to engage us. Part of the covenant that we sign as members is it says we will love God's glory by following the leadership of the church and submitting to principles of church restoration. We will love God's glory by seeking honest and open communication with the leadership when we have concerns. I would just ask you to pray for us. We, we desperately need your prayers. Um, I think about, Keith reminded me in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, he says, and, and I guess I would put it this way, I would assume the best when you don't know the whole. Uh, he says, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. So, so I would ask for prayer. We are men who are striving to do well. Uh, we fail. And, uh, and we are thankful for the gospel that we can say that, that we don't do all things well, uh, but we are striving to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel so that you might, uh, you might be encouraged in the faith. You might be thankful uh, for the leadership that we do seek to provide. So um, let's take a moment now and just consider the weightiness of this call of elders. And I would just ask you to consider, even in these moments, Praying for wisdom. You know, it's, it's an interesting situation. You know, in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Admonish the idle, strengthen the weak, help the brokenhearted, and be patient with all. It takes a lot of wisdom to know when to do what. And so uh, I would love for your prayers for us. And uh, as we pray for you, and then in a few moments, um, I will pray for us. Thank you.